listening to the Hinterviews podcast produced by the National Arts Centre English Theatre and coming to you from the Panorama Room of Canada's National Arts Centre in Ottawa. I'm Laura Denker. Welcome to the Interviews podcast. In each episode, we hope to take you into the intimate world of the artists and creative minds behind the productions on stage at the National Arts Centre English Theatre. In our interviews, artistic director Peter Hinton chats with a guest artist associated with the production. In today's interview podcast, we turn the tables as company dramaturg and artistic associate Paula Dankert interviews Peter Hinton, director of a new production of Macbeth, currently running at the National Arts Centre Theatre until January the 26th, and starring Ben Campbell and Diane D'Aquila. To learn more about Peter's fascinating interpretation of the play, visit our comprehensive web feature at www.nac-cna.ca. Well, hello everyone. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome. Um, I feel quite privileged to be sitting here greeting you, and uh, I feel sort of mutually greeted as I have recently arrived here at the National Arts Centre, being newly appointed to the position of com company dramaturg and artistic associate. And uh, among my um, many uh, new tasks, which I've undertaken, is to accept the pleasure today of speaking with Peter and with you, the audience, uh, about Peter's work and about this production of Macbeth by William Shakespeare. Um, so it, it's a rather large topic, um, I grant, <laughs> for our 45 minutes to an hour here today. But what we will do is just try to get a glimpse into um, Peter's way of thinking and a process and a way of coming to uh, a Shakespeare text or, or even to um, beginning a way into making a, 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 a theatre production. And so that's what I hope we'll be able to do. Um, Peter, I think many of you know a, a lot about Peter, so I will leave some of the, the actual historical facts in terms of where he graduated and such um, to the program notes. Um, but, um, and, and, and I know that many of you are subscribers and have followed his work thus far since his appointment um, where he, when he began his tenure with the very bold announcement of uh, a full season of new Canadian plays, which had never been done in the 40 years at the National Arts Centre of Canada. And um, it was um, quite a statement in coming into his position here, and I think something that's um, garnered much uh, discussion. And, uh, but Peter's very early years in the theatre um, started when he was a very young man, um, and um, at, at very early in life, I think um, 
pretty much all of Peter's life. He has been a, a voracious reader and of texts that include books that include um, rare, uh, little known and, and even rare texts to, of course, the classics, and also including new works with writers who are young, who are beginning, who are starting out um, exploring and discovering what it is to be a writer. So Peter has worked for many years. This kind of um, vast spectrum of influence has um, informed his work as a teacher, and he's worked all across the country, <clears throat> excuse me, at, at universities, at the National Theatre School, in many different capacities as a teacher, mentor, director, and of course directed at companies all across the country as well, and that influence and that love of reading and books and um, uh, history, imagination, fiction has been a huge influence on what he brings to a classroom and to a rehearsal hall. Um, Peter has a deep love of the English language. And I, I think it's a really particular characteristic and I think something that is... Um, that we benefit from in terms of a great gift as a sort of an end result of this um, love of text that has moved into language that has also informed Peter's relationships with actors. They are very, very intimate, very close working relationships. And um, I think that Peter has been aptly referred to as an actor's director. Actors love to work with Peter for many reasons, and I think a real um, source and center of that interest has to do with his passion for language and how language works, how it functions, how we communicate, what we are trying to say, and why. And of course, in the laboratory of a rehearsal hall, it's um, really put under a magnifying glass. I would like to, as a dramaturg, I have worked with Peter on a number of productions. I've had that privilege. And I would like to add to that um, reference to Peter as an actor's director, I would like to add a designer's director because um, Peter's vision for a play, for a production, is very visual. And how um, the work of a text is communicated visually is a very important part of how a production communicates back to an audience. And to me, that warrants also the title of designer's director. And to that, I include a composer's director. Um, Peter has worked for years with composers in very different capacities. He has written a couple of librettos um, for operas and uh, knows very well um, um, how music communicates. So um, I believe that all of this um, interest over many years, um, through his, his years as a young man exploring his work in the theater to his maturing years of really finding a very um, uh, solid statements about being an artist and communicating other artists' work through to an audience, I think that this makes um, the production dramaturgy in Peter's work, uh, something he aspires to being really integral to the overall uh, piece of a production. And that's sort of, that's my, um, 
my observations, my experience and viewpoint um, over the years of seeing Peter's work and, um, and sometimes having the privilege of uh, working with him or watching him work. Um, Peter, this eclectic wealth of experience that you've had um, from directing very small urban centers, small theaters and cities, um, uh, to medium-sized shows outdoors. I'm thinking of the Caravan Farm in British Columbia, which is in um, the interior in BC. Peter spent a number of summers, even years there, working on outdoor shows. To new works, the tried and true works, which you've directed at regional theaters across the country. And then um, more recent years, your work at the Stratford Festival, which began with Peter's premiere work, um, the Swan, which uh, he penned, and um, and then, of course, the works of the Shakespeare's that Peter has directed at the Stratford Festival. All that sort of, that vast wealth of experience. Um, you now talk about approaching new works as though they were classical texts and approaching classics as though they were new works. And I just wonder if you can talk about this approach and this way of thinking about texts and, and how you arrived at it. Sure. Um, well, I, I think I've been lucky, I think, that I've been able to uh, direct in the theater in a combination of new plays and classical plays pretty consistently. And it's lucky because uh, for some reason you can get really ghettoized in this country just that you only do new plays or you only do classical plays. And the two worlds can feel really far apart. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I consider myself just fortunate that I've been able to do both and that they really do inform one another. Because uh, one of the problems, you know, when you're doing a play like Macbeth is it's so bloody famous that you go, oh gosh, how are we going to do the sleepwalking scene? How are we going to do the witches? How are we going to do... And, you, you know, it's not that you just want to be original for the sake of original, but you want the audience to experience the story freshly. And what I find is interesting when you work on a play like Macbeth is um, how, how I'm surprised by what I thought was in the play that isn't and uh, what I never knew existed within it before. It, you discover these incredible things in it. And so um, I, I really like to take on a classical play as though it were new in order to challenge those assumptions about it and to try to find a way to experience it in a fresh way. What was it like to hear this play in 1606? I can't imagine. When it wasn't a great classic taught in every high school, when it was a debated, controversial play. Shakespeare's plays yeah. were new texts at a, some yeah, point in yeah, time. Exactly. We, yeah. And for writers, I think often we come into a new play going, okay, we've got to fix up this puppy and uh, there'll be some problems here. And, and to give it the authority of a classical text, to give it reverence. So we assume the writer knows what she or he's doing and give it that kind of respect because, you know, it's very interesting in working with actors on these plays because when you're working with an actor on a Shakespeare play, you know, you can say to them, look, this is a really old, old reference to a 
threat of the Spanish Armada invading London. No one's going to get it. We'll just cut this three line. The actor, no. <laughs> I can make it work. You mustn't cut it. And the very same actor can be in a workshop of a new Canadian play and will go, this kind of uh, difficult emotional stretch from here, it's got to be cut. And it's very funny. There's this kind of reverence that exists for the classical work, which is both good and um, to be challenged as well. So one kind of just informs the other for me, and I, I hope I get to continue to do that. One of the things that I know I think runs fairly deeply, and I might even say consistently in, in some of your work, is, um, is a real love of England. And I might even say specifically the 19th century. And I'm just I'm wondering, Peter, do you know where that comes from? Well, it comes from my family, for sure. Uh, my uh, father's family are from Yorkshire and uh, are very interesting people and um, uh, were part of uh, a movement in the early 19th century um, in which uh, a rebellion took place in Leeds, where they were from. But that's a big part of it, and a big part of my play, The Swan, is about that story. Um, but I also think the 19th century is a very interesting time. I mean the early 19th century, more than Victorian 19th century. Of uh, There was a big change that took place there. It's the beginning of democracy. It's where our ideas about the world today began to me, is in... Uh, the early 19th century politics. So um, my interest in the culture is kind of my family, and the interest in the politics, I think, really have to do with a way of uh, understanding our time today and a kind of bridge between an ancient world and a modern world. So what then made you turn your sights toward Scotland in the 17th Ah. century? (laughs) Well... This is, uh, Macbeth is a very important play, and we decided we would follow up a Canadian season with a classical season. Um, I really wanted to include a play of Shakespeare's, and uh, Marty Meriden had made a great tradition here of doing uh, Shakespeare plays. And so um, I wanted to take on this tragedy because it's very, very interesting to me and very difficult um, the play is uh, often presented to me much more like a romance. And by that I mean when you think of Macbeth, you think of sort of gothic castles and stirring bagpipes and sexy guys in kilts and witches over a cauldron. You know, these, and it ends up to me becoming romantic, a kind of stirring thing about uh, the wages of sin. And when I read the play, I was really struck with the human face of its tragedy, that it's a play that's really about the capacity within us uh, to, to do things that would horrify us, that we think we would never touch. And Macbeth is someone who, in war, is praised for his acts of violence who the description the bloody captain gives of his victories are 
really um, graphic and who in peace is someone who's um, so humanly sensitive to blood <laughs> he can't bear the sight or smell or look or, of it. And I find that really, really interesting. And the play puts such a... Uh, Macbeth isn't an extraordinary person. He's not a, a wildly unique, tragic hero. He's very common. He takes a wild experience and makes it very direct for us. And um, so I, I was very interested in that, taking on that in the play and um, trying to find a way to explore and enter that uh, human and political tragedy in the play, not just its um, supernatural romantic aspect. Mm -hmm. I, I know that you've directed a, a few Shakespeare's now, uh -huh. but um, this is the first time that you've taken a Shakespeare and, and removed it. Mm -hmm. shifted it, moved it from its, its own period into um, a different period, um, or at least as much as we can imagine what its yeah. own period might be, into a, um, uh, a different period. And I, I wonder if you can speak a little bit about um, what, what uh, inspired you or, or, or provoked you to do that. Yeah. Well, um, I've, as Paul is, yeah, I've always done, uh, I love the 17th century, and that's really a fetish more than anything. I just love the clothes. <laughs> it was the, all about Any the wardrobe, really. To put yeah. <laughs> an actress in a farthingale. Rough. <laughs> love it, you know. It's theater. Um, but with this play, I thought, well, you know, that's the last thing I wanted to do, was put roughs and farthing and make it distance and detached. I wanted it to be present. You know, one of the great challenges for a director particularly is like, how do you make it suspenseful when everybody knows it? How do you make it shocking? How do you make it scary? How do you, what are those things? And so, um, Carolyn Smith, who's the designer who I've worked with many times before, and we had done a, a very big period Duchess of Malfi that was all in period clothes and huge ruffs. At the Stratford Festival at Stratford, last year. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and Carolyn loves all of that. And uh, we sat down with this one and we went, where, we really didn't go, it's going to be this period that we went, where could it be? And, and um, I had thought a lot about the Second World War because of its, um, the way in which I think we still struggle with it that it's, a, it's something that's very unresolved. And I was so moved um, in 2005 with the 60th commemoration of the Holocaust and the um, fall of the Third Reich and uh, how struck I was by the stories of survivors and the stories of that war and um, what was inside it. And when we think about that war, you know, we often think... Well, if I was there at that time, I certainly would have been part of the resistance, and I would have said no, and I would have fled from Eastern Europe, and I would have told Hitler where to go. Would I really? What were the face of people that were vulnerable to that, who didn't know, who didn't want to know? What's the difference of those two things? How did that come to be? And I think looking at our own world now, uh, often the Second World War gets very romanticized too. 
and we go, you know, lest we forget, and it was a heroic time or something. And it was certainly the, the time, the world that defined my parents, for example, were so defined by that war, and that war meant so much to them. And the play started having very interesting resonances in that time. And certainly when Shakespeare wrote the play in 1606, it was just a few years after the gunpowder plot where Guy Fawkes and his gang had threatened to, you know, blow up the House of Parliament. And it certainly would have been debatable in in an audience in the early 17th century about this play. Is it a pro-monarchist track honoring James I's claim to the throne of the Scottish king? Or does the play propose a more skeptical view uh, that monarchy is vulnerable to assassination, that there are other movements afoot, that it is um, revolution and rebellion sit very close outside the castle wall. It's very ambiguous what this play is telling you. And I thought the Second World War setting would really illuminate those aspects to it. And it's been very interesting because that controversy remains. I have subscribers writing me, you can't set the play in the Second World War, what are you saying? That is wrong, that is not what ancient Scotland is. You know, I'm like, wow. And it's interesting because you really have to see it. It's not, it's not like um, I was very inspired by the abdication of Edward VIII and his relationship to Wallace Simpson, and I spent many years working on an adaptation of Timothy Findlay's book, Famous Last Words. And that sort of delved me into the world of Wallace and Edward. And Findlay's thesis is very strongly on the side that Wallace and Edward were courted by von Rippentrop and the Nazi party. And we do know that Wallace Simpson received 17 carnations a day from von Rippentrop, a day, between 1938 and 42, And they did have affiliations, like many prominent Europeans did. As fascism was being uh, considered a possible way of working things out. But it's not a production that says Lady Macbeth is Wallace Simpson. It's a point of departure. It's, a, it's an imaginative world, like Shakespeare did with history, to take on a political, moral tragedy. And so you know, there's no swastikas in the production. Nobody plays Winston Churchill. Um, but there, you know, the thing we found is we, the cast we've all been talking about, moments where they have their abdication. And I personally think Malcolm is much more actually like Edward VIII. And we don't get to see Malcolm's Duncan's son, who becomes the king at the end of the play, and you don't get to see what kind of uh, monarchy Malcolm runs. But uh, just to see if you agree with me when you watch the show or see it, is um, uh, there are different aspects of Edward and Wallace throughout the, the piece. But it's that kind of duality of, um, of resistance and fascism of, you know, what are the ghosts that haunt us? But the Holocaust is, is a ghost. It haunts our imagination. It terrifies us as it, as it should 
And what do we do to pre prevent that from happening again in the face of what's going on in the world now? And um, it, was a, it was very sobering to be working on this play during the recent um, uh, assassination of Bhutto and what that means to uh, not only Pakistan, but what it means to the world. And you look at her son and the legacy he has chosen, inherited, destined, fated. Well, you know what I mean? Like it, it, it goes so... Um, it's funny, you know, because it's so easy in talking about Macbeth to go to a very specific reference of 1606 and gunpowder plots to, to Pakistan. Pakistan and our world now and Wallace yeah. Simpson thrown in for fun, you yeah. know. Yeah. <laughs> Got to give Carolyn some dresses to do, you know. <laughs> Can't be all uniform. She'll go insane. <laughs> um, I just need to do a time check. I've I've broken my watch. And how are we doing for time here, Laura? Before we need to finish, so maybe. Okay, there's so much more I'd love to ask Peter. Um, but but I, I'd also love to turn it over to the floor to hear from you as well and um, invite your your questions. Yes. Uh, I'm seeing the play tonight, so I haven't okay. seen it yet, but a friend of mine wanted me to ask on his behalf, mm -hmm. because he has seen it already, where you got the inspiration from for the tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow? Okay. Um, so that okay. Spoiler warning, spoiler warning. <laughs> yes, yes. La, 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 for those of you who don't want to hear. Um, yeah, did you hear the question? Did everyone hear the question? No, okay. Um, uh, we have a proxy question, actually, sent uh, via someone who's already seen the show uh, through someone who has yet to see it. And the question is, what, how, how is the tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow um, uh, speech in the play? Uh, um, how, did we, how did Peter come upon that? How was he inspired? Well, I don't want to give it away. I will talk to you. I'll talk to you briefly after, privately, if you like. But, um, you know... What I can speak to about it and is you want to... I worked with this actor once, John Moffat, who, oh, God love him. And he, I did As You Like It with him where you have to do all the world's a stage, you know. And he hated doing it. Couldn't stand it. In rehearsal, you couldn't get him to do it. And he would just go, all the world's a stage. He'd just throw it away. Go, John, you can't throw it away. It's one of the most famous speeches. He goes, I know. <laughs> so I don't want to do it. And... And I came to see the show a couple of weeks into the run. He was magnificent in it. There he is in front of, you know, uh, out in the High Park, Dreamin' High Park in Toronto, sitting on a hill, all the world's a stage, 3,000 people, there he is doing it. And I said, why, how did you, you, you look like you're actually having fun doing that, John. And he goes, oh, I love that. He said he realized it was like um, when a rock band does their number one hit song. <laughs> that they didn't actually all go, oh no, not that famous, bitch. The audience all went, oh, we know that. We're, yes. And you can hear it because Macbeth is so quotable. It's you know. But the, where they happen, one of my colleagues was saying, I, 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 was, I didn't realize tomorrow and tomorrow happens there in that context. And so what we were trying to do was stay true. We weren't trying to find a cool way to do it because the first thing you do is they're not speeches. 
right? There, there are moments that happen. They only become a speech through whatever. And so we actually tried to pursue something else and we found ourselves going, are we really going to do the tomorrow and tomorrow speech like that? And well, let's stay with it to follow what's happening in the scene, what's happening for the character rather than try to make a, a to-do about it. It is unusual, that, that's for sure. But um, it's interesting of the state of the character and, and working with Ben Campbell was really um, a great privilege because it's just, Ben is so skilled at doing this material and so built to play Macbeth. He is built to play that part. He is equally sensitive, a poet, a feeling, articulate statesman, man, artist, and he's built like a little British bulldog. He's... <laughs> and he can pick up a sword and you go, okay, he knows what he's doing. You believe the soldier, you believe the... He's fantastic. So he had a big part to do with it too. Other questions? Yes. What do you do? Oh, what do I do? Yes. Your oh. title? Oh, um, I, uh, my title is company dramaturg. What is dramaturg? Dramaturg. D. Never heard. It is a very funny word, isn't it? I know they look at me very strangely when I come through customs. <laughs> do you put that down as your job? I love ah. putting that down, especially when I go to the United States. <laughs> I do. I'll admit it. Oh my God. A dramaturg is uh, well. Its its origins are German. There are there are debates around dramaturgs. We love language and books and research and all of that. We love to to debate whether it should be dramaturg without an e or dramaturge with an e. But in French, dramaturge tends to mean playwright. And so, um, in in English, um, I use the word dramaturg, which is more the German reference because I'm not a playwright, but I work with playwrights. And in Canada, in Germany, in Europe, the, drama, the work of a dramaturg is often somebody who has a kind of a facility with languages, does translations, works on, on different editions of texts, works very closely with the artistic director in programming a season, um, works on editing scripts in the rehearsal hall. Um, and um, in my work, in Canada, what um, dramaturgy has been, I think, more focused on than that of the work of dramaturgs in Europe is, is new work. Because, you know, theatre in Canada is very young. It's such a strange thing to think about for me because, you know, here we are working on Shakespeare, which is so ancient in some ways. Um, not really ancient, but it feels like that sometimes. And yet in Canada, the theater is barely 50 years old. It's really, I mean, our theater, our playwrights and the works of our, of our own stage. And, and so um, in, the, the, in, in my career, in the 25, 20 years that I've been working in the theater, it's really been concentrated and focused on on new works and working with playwrights and developing scripts for the stage so that we can build our own body of work that lives alongside that of the English and the German and, and the Norwegian and the American so that we can actually have a look at some sense of, some experience of what 
is it how is it that we um, imagine ourselves to be or having been, and and that that is the work of bringing the playwright into the theater, our very own living playwrights. So so a lot of my work has really been focused on that, but of course it is also informed by a lot of reading and research and um, looking at different kinds of works and editions and Peter and I can get into fantastically interesting conversations on the colon. <laughs> and, um, In punctuation. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> little Dame Edna there for a moment. <laughs> Fascinating, really. Anyway, that's, uh, that's just a... Continuation. Does one go to dramaturg school? Oh, does one go to dramaturg school? Um, some people do go to dramaturg school. I believe that there are now actually programs, I think, at York, York. University. Yeah. Awesome. Um, there's a study in, uh, in dramaturgy and uh, like Yale University, I SFU believe. SFU, too? Yes, yes. So mm -hmm. it's, you know, yes, it is. It's, um, it's something that I didn't. Oh, I should. September 2008. I should apply. U of O. Yeah. I, wow. Pardon? At Ottawa U? Yes. How are we doing for time here? Do we have time for another question? No. No. Okay. Thank you all so very much. Thank Marvelous you. to sort of have a look at you all, and I'll look forward to seeing more of you. And thank you very thank much, you, Peter. Enjoy the show. That's all for this Hinterviews podcast. I hope you'll join us again next month when Artistic Director Peter Hinton will be talking with Yvette Nolan, Director of Death of a Chief and Artistic Director of Native Earth Performing Arts in Toronto. Send us your comments and questions. You can reach us by sending an email to hinterviews at gmail.com. That's H-I-N-T-E-R-V-I-E-W-S at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. And don't forget, you can subscribe to this and other NAC podcasts by visiting nac.ca slash podcasts. There you'll find our past episodes, subscription links, and instructions on how to subscribe. You can also easily find us as a free subscription in the podcast section of the iTunes Music Store. Search on Hinterviews. Until next month, this is Laura Denker for Peter Hinton and Company, saying goodbye from Canada's National Arts Centre in Ottawa. Thank you.